1: Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. Firstly, welcome to all of you who have found me via Spotify. What a lovely surprise to see myself featured and see the resulting additions to our little family. Thanks to everyone who reached out to say hi and who followed me in any of the various social media locales. Now, I'm feeling the need to address some general notes when it comes to mythology. I've said it before, but I want to emphasize again that there are so many different versions of the mythology we have. This is, of course, because it was often passed down orally, so stories change. That, and regional differences throughout the Greek city-states, meant that stories from one area would differ from a similar or even the same general story that might have originated from elsewhere. Also, I tend to use one or maybe two sources at any given time. This is, frankly, because it takes quite a lot of time to research, even when you're sticking to only one source. That's all to say, just don't take me as the be-all and end-all of any Greek myth. You know, I'm one person researching and relaying to you, but you'll almost definitely find different interpretations elsewhere. I did study classics, I do have a degree in it, but I'm no scholar. I'm here to entertain you and regale you with the madness. Before we get into today's episode, I would love it if you would do me a huge favor and take a super quick survey. You can access it by going to my website, mythsbaby.com, and clicking on the banner at the top of the screen. That will bring you to a quick five-question survey that will help me immensely. It asks for your email address. I won't be using it based on this. Separately, if you want me to have it in order to be able to be in touch with you with any new exciting news, you can give it to me on the homepage of my website. That's all to say, if you're not comfortable providing it in the survey, feel free to leave that blank. It's the rest of the survey that's most helpful. Again, my website, mythsbaby.com, and click on the banner on the top. You're the bomb, friends. With that said, this is episode 27, Don't Be Awful, or The Curse on the House of Atreus. We're taking another brief pause in our Trojan War cycle to look at what makes the Greek leader Agamemnon tick. Why is he the way he is? What's that curse on the house of Atreus we've all heard so much about? The curse will come back with a vengeance after the war, but for now, it's important to understand Agamemnon and Menelaus' history. So today, we look at their family, which is storied, to say the least. Now, Pelops is a name you may remember. Pelops' father was the famous Tantalus. I covered Tantalus in a mini-myth back during my October run of gross and semi-scary stories. Check that one out if you haven't, because it covers the first level of this family line, which spans generations and generations of fucked-up men. Surprising, I know. Something new and different. To recap, Tantalus thought himself better than the gods and wanted to test them. To do this, at its most basic recollection, Tantalus killed his son, Pelops. He cut him up, and he tried to feed him to the gods, like any good father would. You'll recall that, of course, the gods caught on to this, and they punished Tantalus by confining him in Tartarus for the rest of time. But they didn't catch on in time to save 100% of Pelops. They pitied him, and so they put him back together and brought him back to life. Poor Demeter had been distracted that day. She was missing her daughter, who was off with her dumb husband Hades in the underworld. And so Demeter wasn't paying attention, and she ate a piece of Pelops. This meant that Pelops, when put back together by the ever helpful gods, was missing a chunk of his shoulder because biology. He was given an ivory prosthetic for his shoulder. It was made by Hephaestus, super craftsman extraordinaire. And after this very bizarre childhood, Pelops grew up, though without the presence of his problematic father. When he was grown, Pelops travels from his homeland in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, to Greece. He settles in the region that is to this day named after him, the Peloponnese, which simply means Pelops's island. If you're not familiar with the geography of Greece, because I mean, why would you be if you don't live near there and aren't crazy like me? The Peloponnese is the southern peninsula of mainland Greece. It's not actually an island, it's connected by a small piece of land. The most famous city there is Sparta. Everyone knows Sparta. Now, Pelops also has an important sister, Niobe. But Niobe's got a story of her own that we'll cover another day. When Pelops first arrives in mainland Greece, he makes a stopover to try to win the hand of a woman. You know, typical man can't do anything except go after a woman who probably wants nothing to do with him, or at least, at this moment, has no idea who the fuck he is. Anyway, Pelops stops to compete for a wife, again awesome for the ladies. This woman that Pelops is competing for is named Hippodamia, and she is the daughter of the king of Olympia, Eneus. Enemaeus is famous for being super good at chariot racing, which sounds about as exciting as being skilled at driving a car, said the near-30-year-old without a driver's license. Because the king is skilled at this and has the ego to match, in order to sort out who could marry his daughter without, of course, simply presenting her with options, he decides that it would be whoever can beat him in a chariot race. Always a competition. By another account... There's another reason that Enemaeus isn't keen on his daughter marrying any of the men that are competing. Can you guess why? That's right. There is a goddamn prophecy. Oracles, am I right? There's a prophecy that says that Enemaeus will be killed by his son-in-law. So, any man who proposes marrying Hippodamia must beat Enemaeus in a chariot race. The race will be across the mountain range of the Peloponnese which presumably is not yet called that because Pelops has only just shown up. They will race from Olympia and across the Peloponnese. When Pelops rolls up, there have already been 13 men who have tried to beat Enemaeus in the race, and all of them have failed. Hippodamia, I might imagine, is just loving her life watching all this happen, especially because when these guys fail in the race against Enemaeus, they're punished. That punishment is that their heads will be stuck on the walls of Enemaus's palace, because he seems like a super chill guy. There's also suggestion that he is either fearful of the aforementioned prophecy, or, alternatively and disgustingly, he just wants his daughter for himself, and he doesn't want any other man to have her. So, you know, that's nice. <laughs> So Pelops has arrived in Olympia, and he wants to marry Hippodamia. Like everyone else, he'll need to beat Enemaeus in the chariot race across the Peloponnese. Pelops is a particular favorite of the god Poseidon. According to Pindar, it's because he is a former lover of the god, so clearly they were able to stay friends. And because of this close relationship, possibly friendly exes, the Earth Shaker, god of the sea and horses supplies Pelops with a badass chariot pulled by badass horses. But still, Pelops isn't quite sure how he feels about his odds. See, Inimaeus' horses have beaten everyone else up to this point, so Pelops figures they have to be pretty damn fast. And apparently it's even said that they can beat Boreas, who is the north wind, in a race. So, I mean, that is pretty damn fast. Fast as the wind, you might say. Meanwhile, King Enemaeus has a groom, a horse caretaker. His name is Myrtalus, and he is the son of the god Hermes, and so he is particularly fond of trickery. Realizing what kind of opportunity this presents, Pelops speaks with Myrtalus before the race and offers him half of the kingdom if he'll sabotage Enemaeus and help Pelop's win. Myrtalus jumps at the chance. I guess he's not particularly loyal to his boss. Myrtilus replaces the pins in the wheel or the axis or however those things work on a chariot. He replaces them with fake wax versions. You can see where this is going. Wax, ancient Greek mythology, things always go wrong. So it's the day of the race and all is ready to go down. Now, it's normal in these races that have become old hat for Enemaeus that the suitor be given a head start. Enemaeus lets this happen and then quickly catches up to them and kills them. And not only that, but the suitors always have Hippodamia with them in their chariot. Apparently it's a game Enemaeus likes to play with the suitors. He pretends that Hippodamia is being abducted and that he's pursuing her abductor and ultimately saves her, killing the man who's taken her. Which is... Just so twisted and gross and weird. This race starts like all the others. Enemaeus gives Pelops a head start and attempts to catch up to him and Hippodamia, who are in the chariot ahead. But just as he’s catching up, the wax pins melt and the wheels of his chariot fly off, sending him flying. Enemaus lands, crashing into the ground in a gross mass of twisted metal and bits of human flesh scattered throughout. It’s pleasant. And so Hippodamia, who has just watched her father be killed in a disturbing crash, suddenly finds herself having to marry the man who did it. Lucky lady. Now there's the matter of Myrtilus and what he's owed for the sabotage of Enemaeus' chariot. After the race, Myrtalus approaches Pelops and Hippodamia, looking for his prize for helping to defeat the king. Presumably, Hippodamia learns in this moment that her father has basically been murdered by the machinations of Pelops and Myrtalus. So if she wasn't already thrilled to be marrying this man, I bet she is now. So Myrtalus rolls up, looking for his prize, half the kingdom, which is of course what Pelops had promised. According to Myrtalus, he has presumed that his half includes Hippodamia, Seriously, she's property and nothing else. And this whole conversation is a real thrill ride for her. But Pelops, of course, believes her to be his property. And so when Myrtalus starts getting handsy and straight up assaulty with Hippodamia, Pelops decides he is over the whole half the kingdom agreement. Instead, he takes Myrtalus and drives with him in his chariot to the highest cliffs in the region. There, he throws Myrtalus to his death. And as he falls, the long, unending drop to the craggy rocks and crashing waves below, Myrtilus calls out a curse on Pelops and all his descendants. Now, you may be thinking, but the title of this episode is The Curse on the House of Atreus. Who the fuck is Atreus? Why isn't it called The Curse on the House of Pelops? And I would say to you, great fucking question, you insightful listeners, you. Atreus is the son of Pelops, and although the curse originates with Pelops and the murder of Myrtalus, there is more to the curse that is more famously referred to as the curse on the house of Atreus, for reasons that will become clear shortly. But generally, it just makes things confusing. Keeps you on your toes. Where we return to our cursed family, Pelops has been ruling the king of Olympia quite happily for a long time. For a while, he was thinking maybe there isn't really a curse at all. Maybe it's just the ramblings of a guy he threw off a cliff, and it won't actually have any effect. Then, one day, he learns from, yes, an oracle, that a son of Pelops should be king of Mycenae. The trouble is, Pelops has two sons, Atreus and Thyestes. On the order of their father and the hope that they will be king, Atreus and Thyestes travel to the city of Mycenae, both expecting to claim the throne. And that's when things go really downhill for the family of Pelops. Hermes, hell-bent on implementing the curse issued by his dying son, sends a shepherd to Mycenae. The shepherd brings with him a golden lamb that he says has, apparently, been miraculously born that way. According to the Mycenaeans, the lamb is an obvious sign of the kingship of the region, for some reason. Gold, livestock, guys, watch out for it. It means you're going to be the ruler of the land. Atreus quickly claims that he is the rightful ruler of Mycenae because the shepherd has given him the golden lamb personally. Obviously, he says that's what it meant. Obviously. Atreus, entirely certain that he is now meant to be king, begins preparing for the coronation. Golden lamb, after all. But his brother, Thyestes, isn't giving up so easily. Thyestes seduces Aerope, Atreus' wife. He convinces her to give him the golden lamb. And so when all the important people of the region get together for the ceremony to choose their new king... It's Thaestes that rolls up with the golden lamb, not Atreus. And so it's Thaestes that is crowned king of Mycenae. <gasps> dun dun, dun. <laughs> But it isn't over yet. Because this is Greek mythology and it's called the curse on the house of Atreus and not Pelops for a reason. See, Zeus wants Atreus to be the king of Mycenae. He doesn't much care for Thaestes, though I'm not sure why. So Zeus, now working to make Atreus the king, causes the sun to move in the wrong direction. This, as you might imagine, causes people down on Earth to freak out a little bit. I mean, big, very high-profile change in the way the world operates. Anyway, they were worked up. Continuing on with his plan, Zeus sends Hermes to whisper in Atreus's ear, Following Hermes' instructions, Atreus then tells the people of Mycenae that the rightful king will be shown by a sign from the gods that's much more impressive than some weirdly golden animal. And with that, Zeus causes the sun to return to its rightful route through the sky. The people are, of course, relieved by this development. They also recognize that this is obviously what was meant by that earlier foretelling, And obviously, that means that Atreus should, in fact, be king of Mycenae. Obviously. It's all very obvious. So, Atreus becomes king. But the madness isn't over yet. Thyestes is banished from the kingdom for what he's done, seducing Atreus's wife and stealing the precious golden livestock. Bad news. Atreus is, of course, angry with his brother and his wife. Shit has gone down. And so the immediate, obvious thing to do is to drown his wife Arope, You know, as you do when you're mad. Best solution, murder. But that's not enough. Atreus is still pissed. Becoming king is apparently all he cares about in the world because he's really willing to fuck shit up because his brother and wife had, you know, prevented him from being king. He sounds like a real great guy.
1: Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene, Eugene, Fodor. Gene, we'll good!
1: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
0: So you write the books, Gene, and vlasto on this business. I understand now. This is a wise man. Is a wiser woman.
1: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down!
3: I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on and its high time. You tell me the truth.
2: Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh!
3: Jean, run!
1: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Atreus tells his brother that he's been forgiven, so Thaestes returns to Mycenae thinking it's all good. No news on whether it's a red flag to Thaestes that Aerope has been drowned, but all the same, Atreus invites Thaestes to a reconciliation celebration. Feast in honor of these brothers burying the hatchet. How sweet, right? For dinner, Atreus kills Thyestes' sons, cuts them up, cooks them, and feeds them to his brother. There's a really pleasant theme in this family. Now, we all remember how the gods feel about cannibalism, particularly when it's a family member. Big, big no-no. Thankfully a no-no in most polite societies, but the gods particularly found this to be the worst of the worst. We're told that the sky darkens as Atreus commits this crime, that the sun hides from the sight. Thyestes is feeling particularly famished, and he eats the food happily, filling himself right up. Finally, he wonders aloud, hmm, where are my sons? Atreus then lifts the lid on a serving dish that has gone unnoticed. In it were Thyestes' sons hands and feet and heads. Thaestes leaps from the table, losing his damn mind. He yells a curse at Atreus, asking that his house may fall. Thaestes flees to Sicyon, where he looks to find a way to have revenge on his brother for this, one of the most heinous crimes of ancient Greece. What is the best way to get his revenge? How should it be done? Thaestes consults. Yes, you guessed it. An oracle asking these questions. The oracle provides. Well, it's a response, I guess. The oracle says that Thaestes will father a child with his own daughter, whose name is Pelopia. That child will grow up to be an instrument of Thyestes' vengeance. Ah, ancient Greece. Thyestes is troubled by this, thankfully. He wants revenge, but he doesn't want it this way. Again, thankfully. He heads back to Sicyon from the Oracle to try to figure out what the good god damn he's going to do. I mean, this is not the solution he's looking for. On his way back, he comes upon a temple to Athena, where her priestesses are taking part in some kind of god-worshipping rite. The priestesses are sacrificing something, and one of them gets blood all over her clothes. She leaves the rite to head down to the nearby stream to clean herself up. Sacrificing can get so messy. This young priestess undresses by the stream and starts to wash her clothes. Baestes, who is nearby, follows this young girl down to the stream. He watches her undress like a real perv, and when he sees it, well, he can't control himself, which is absolutely no excuse, and so he rapes her. Because, you know, ancient Greece and Greek mythology, etc., etc., And guess fucking what, you guys? Yeah, right. Obviously, this priestess is his daughter, Pelopia, and his general rapiness fulfills the oracle's prophecy, because doesn't that always happen? And also, let's rethink Thaestes' apparent disgust with the oracle's prediction when it was immediately followed by him raping a girl. God damn. Also, let's just pause a moment to address those who say I'm hard on men. One... I'm hard on the women when it's warranted. But two, and most importantly, the men are fucking disgusting in Greek mythology. Sorry, but they are. Anyway, obviously Thyestes has fulfilled this prophecy, though neither he nor his daughter realize that has happened. Poor girl just knows she's been raped, which I guess is a slight awful and disturbing consolation. When Pelopia gives birth to the child, she doesn't want it. It's a symbol of her rape. She gets rid of the baby by having it exposed, as they do. It's left for the wolves and crows in the mountains. Of course, as the Greek mythology trope goes, the baby is saved by shepherds who find it and take pity on it. They keep the baby alive with milk from their goats, and they name the baby Agisthus, which is basically just the word for a male goat. Very creative shepherds we have here. When the baby grows older, the shepherds bring him to the nearest city, you know, Mycenae. And they give the baby to the king there to be raised as the king's own. The king being Atreus. Meanwhile, Atreus' own sons too grow up. His sons are named Menelaus and Agamemnon. And it's important to know for some reason that Menelaus is a redhead. Like, it's mentioned often. He's a ginger. Make note. All these years, Atreus has been complaining to his sons, and now his adopted son, Aegisthus, of the awfulness of his brother, Thyestes. The boys are brought up to think their uncle to be the worst of the worst. So, when Atreus decides to once again tell Thyestes that he's been forgiven and invite him to return to Mycenae, Aegisthus comes up with a plan. Aegisthus decides to kill his pseudo-uncle-slash-actual-father to repay Atreus for raising him. Aegisthus, of course, has no idea that Thaestes is actually his father, because Thaestes himself doesn't know. Even Aegisthus' real mother, Pelopia doesn't know that her own father is the boy's father, her rapist. Aegisthus meets Thaestes somewhere hidden away, the best place to do your murdering and he draws his sword. Thyestes sees the sword, and he recognizes it. He yells out, Hey, that's my sword! It's been lost for years. Where did you find it? And also, maybe he might have said, And why are you pointing it at me? You see, way, way back, when Thyestes unknowingly raped his own goddamn daughter, he also left his sword behind, because he's a real jackass. And for some reason, Pelopia. Kept the sword until the baby was born, and only then did she abandon the sword along with the baby. Logic is not key to this myth, my friends. Of course, logic notwithstanding, this is a great plot device to finally reveal the secret relation between Aegisthus and Thyestes. The sword makes them both realize that Thyestes is, in fact, Aegisthus' father. They then send for Pelopia to reveal the truth. How either knew to involve Pelopia is beyond me. I suppose Thyestes remembered the oracle and was like, oh, maybe it was Pelopia I raped? But, like, Agisthus doesn't know she's his mom. Anyway, guys, I say again about the logic. The point is, Pelopia comes to see these two men that she absolutely does not want to see. Poor woman. And indeed, Pelopia comes and the truth is revealed, and obviously, she is. Absolutely fucked up by this knowledge. Seriously, this story is awful. Pelopia takes the sword, and she kills herself. Somehow, this revelation of Agisthus's parentage of Thyestes and Pelopia causes Aegisthus and his father-slash-grandfather to bond. Because, you know, Greek mythology. Aegisthus then takes the sword to Atreus. It's covered in blood, and Aegisthus tells Atreus that it's Thyestes' blood. And that Thyestes has been killed. This lulls Atreus into thinking that his most fervent wish has been granted. His brother is dead. But alas, not true. Aegisthus, who now loves his father who raped his mother more somehow than he loves Atreus who raised him, and he kills Atreus and installs Thyestes as king of Mycenae. So, a not at all happy ending to a totally fucked up story. Agamemnon and Menelaus, Atreus's two sons, flee Mycenae. And later, this story is not at all satisfactorily wrapped up when, at some point, Agamemnon and Menelaus return to Mycenae and remove Thaestes from the throne. Thaestes is banished, never to return, and Agamemnon is made king of Mycenae. Menelaus, of course, becomes king of Sparta when he marries Helen, and you know where it goes from there. And Aegisthus, well, from my sources, it's not explicitly said that he's allowed to stay around once Agamemnon becomes king of Mycenae. But, well, he's still in the picture, even though he killed their father. That will be important later. And that is the curse on the house of Atreus. A curse that is vitally important to the lives of Agamemnon and Menelaus as they continue on with the Trojan War, which we'll return to in the next episode. Thank you all for once again listening to me rant about mythology. As per usual, you can find me everywhere at Myth's Baby, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know the places. Please, if you like this podcast, leave me a rating and even maybe review an iTunes, Apple podcast, whatever you want to call it. It really, really helps other people find the podcast. And don't we all love the idea of more myth nerds joining the fold? I know I do. The more nerds out there, the better. I also want to give a quick shout out to my Patreon sponsors. You're all magnificent, and I hope you enjoyed the special episode released recently. For the rest of you, I did a special episode on the historicity of the movie 300. That's available to the second tier of Patreon patrons. Honestly, it's ended up way more fascinating than I was expecting because I got to do some deep diving into the Spartan culture and society, as well as the Persian Wars and the Battle of Thermopylae. Thank you again, you beautiful people. I'm Liv, and I just absolutely love this shit.
1: start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
2: i'm tamika d mallory and it's your boy my son the general and we are your host of tmi new year new name new energy but same old us. oh yeah